Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. The kids who are sick cannot do their hip-hop anymore. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. You should withdraw that. And if you don't, we will have to deal with it on the floor of the Senate. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Swear to Christ, Liz, you get a bag of all sorts in here, mate. G'day and welcome to Not A Knife, the podcast that's all about culture, unity, reviews and banter. This podcast is proudly recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of Perth region and I pay respects to their elders both past, present and emerging. This podcast is also part of the Ozcast Network where you can hear other great shows like the Yeah Good Day podcast, Apple Slice and the Hong Kong Confidential podcast. All great shows, really highly recommended. Now it's been a little bit between drinks for me uh, in putting out shows. Um... Mostly because, you know, I've been sick, I had the flu, and which lasted for a couple of weeks, and I've also just been perpetually exhausted, uh, which is, you know, always great when you've got to sit down and, and record a podcast and, you know, just life kind of gets you a little bit exhausted, and you feel like, I really don't have the energy to sit there and talk about uh, stuff for an hour and a half or you know however long it takes for me to sit here record something edit it oh i'm kidding i don't edit these things i literally just put the intro hit record and then deal with the the fact that the dogs are ticking on the floor behind me um but sometimes you just don't have the energy to do those kinds of things sometimes you don't have the energy to wake up in the morning and face the day and that sounds like depression and it probably is depression i do have i do live with a mental illness i do live with anxiety and have had depression in the past and i think i'm dealing with that pretty well at the moment but anxiety is pretty high sometimes um and it makes going out and doing things just a little bit hard it's not so hard to go and watch movies uh mostly because i'm sitting in the dark and nothing's really happening yes i'm surrounded by people but it's pretty easy because i get in the car drive there and walk into the cinema, watch the movie, get back in my car and go home. Um, it's pretty, it sounds like a fairly solitary life and it is kind of a solitary life in a lot of ways, but I find this very comfortable in, in some ways to just kind of do that and not have to engage with uh, people all that much. But it's not healthy. It's not, it's not very good to do that. You still need to actually engage with society you can't just shut yourself off from society it's not beneficial to you to actually do that so that's what i'm trying to do and and uh trying to be a little bit better of a person in in doing that kind of thing and you know talking about these kinds of of uh problems i guess uh, again as i said it's been a while between podcasts and that's really the main reason why uh it has been a while um 
I've talked to, I've done a couple of interviews over the past few weeks uh, and on the last new wave, the Australian film podcast, which I do, uh, I launch, I put that episode out there uh, with a discussion with Heath Davis, who's the director of Book Week, really solid Australian film that came out this year. It's currently in cinemas around Australia. And then also the uh, festival director for Cine Vivo Perth uh, Festival, which is a great little festival that's running in Perth at the moment. So I did an interview with him as well, and that's up on that particular episode two um but i've really kind of had a little bit less energy to uh deal with the website in some ways which is a shame because you know i really enjoy dealing with the website i enjoy writing reviews i enjoy you know engaging with culture and and society in a lot of ways and i had all these great ideas about what i'm going to do with the podcast talk about politics uh you know talk about gaming and all this kind of stuff and that will come back it will do um but just to give you guys a, a bit of a clarity, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of, uh, you know, trying to deal with the, the impending change of the year and stuff like that and looking at it as a really positive way and, and trying to essentially, um, you know, find my way forward, uh, enjoying what I do with the small audience that I have. One of the things which I've found in the past few weeks is that it's really, um, you know, uh, there's, there's talk about writers and and people who create content on the on the internet and things like that and getting paid and and what reach you have and all this kind of stuff and you know there's a little bit of imposter syndrome that I feel in some ways where I've been doing this for about five years now and I thoroughly enjoy what I do and I thoroughly enjoy writing and all this kind of stuff um but I never feel like I'm actually uh part of you know, I, I am part of a community. I am, you know, I do have uh, what I write and, and the podcasts I do and the interviews that I do. People do listen. People do get in contact and tell me that they do. But because I do it as kind of like a hobby in some ways, I still feel like, a you know, a slight imposter in the sense that, hey, you're just a guy who's doing it from his living room uh, and that's about it, which is fine. A lot of people do that. Um, there is no money in this kind of uh, field. There's no money in writing about movies. There's no money in writing about uh, games and stuff like that nowadays. It just isn't because the, the, the saturation of people who are dealing with writing about things uh, for their own entertainment in particular, you know, is, is huge. It's massive. Um, and I guess my mentality is I've got to come to grips with that, like, you know, be happy with the small group of people that I have and things like that. And it's such a, like with all the problems in the world, uh, you know, Trump and climate change and, uh, you know, the growing uh, crisis with refugees and terrorism around the world and all this kind of stuff. I'm not linking refugees and terrorism, I'm not saying that refugees create terrorism, it's just, you know, comma space kind of thing. But with all of the problems around the world, uh, this, you know, white guy in suburbia whinging about, uh, you know, not getting paid for writing reviews on the internet is fairly low-key stuff, is extremely low-key stuff. But it's a hobby which I do, and it's something that I enjoy doing, and it's just understanding how to get past that whole, um, you know, imposter syndrome problem it's a small problem it is but to really enjoy what i do i've I, you know i've managed to ignore a lot of different things that 
I do, you know, they, they go on the internet and stuff like that. You know, people talking about, oh, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody, for example. I haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody, but the the, the old discussion about the separation between critics and audiences, uh, you know, fuels up again. And there's just this antagonism that's directed towards critics online at the moment. Well, it has been over the past few years where, you know, they're like, everybody's going to go and see these movies but the critics hate them so therefore the critics are out of touch with the audiences and therefore critics are useless and pointless which then in turn makes film criticism a niche field and in turn you know there are people who are academics who you know explore film and film history and what films mean and they're almost relegated to a, an, an even further niche field because, yes, there are critics, but the critics, you know, they're, they're, they're people who are interested in talking about mainstream films a lot of the time and less interested in talking about smaller films. And that's fine. I enjoy talking about smaller films and I try and boost them as much as possible. But in the realm of film criticism, it's a lot easier for people to go, hey, Let's talk about the latest Star Wars film, the last Marvel film, and stuff like that, because that gets the hits, that gets people talking. And they're less interested in talking about your smaller films and, and all this kind of stuff. But then you've got, as I say, you've got academics whose job it is to explore cinema as a whole, and whether it be old films, new films, Star Wars, uh, you know, Ozu or mizuguchi or anything like that all of these old cinema versus new cinema whatever they want to explore um you know or women in horror and things like that there is a lot of different things that is going on in academia which is really interesting really fascinating but again that's a very niche thing and it's finding comfort in that niche environment it's finding comfort in the world of all right, I may only have 50 people who listen to the show or maybe only have, you know, 100 people who read the website or anything like that. But if I can get those 100 people interested in something like Sweet Country, for example, which is still the best film I've seen this year, if I can get them interested in Sweet Country, then fantastic. That's 100 people who have gone and watched a great film from Australia. And that's that's enough. That's fantastic. And it's being comfortable with that. And I think at this time of the year where there's a lot of talk about top 10 lists and, you know, best of the year kind of stuff and, uh, you know, there's the same kind of films all rise to the top. You know, the, the, the cream of the crop all kind of rise to the top. And you saw it a few years ago where every every critic out there was uh, falling over themselves to reward Birdman for being best film and then La La Land and then... Call Me By Your Name, and Call Me By Your Name is great. I love that film. It's one of the best films of 2017. But, you know, there are films which every critic is falling over themselves to be like, oh, my God, this is the best thing. And so at this time of year, all that happens is you end to see, you know, you see the same numbers of films, you know, the same four or five films kind of appearing. And that's what award season is uh, is like. I'm going on a tangent here, but basically, you know, Finding comfort in your hobby and finding comfort in uh, enjoying your hobby and, and, and trying to, um, you know, appreciate that it will only always be a hobby. Like in an ideal world, it would be great to be able to uh, work and earn money on the regular and work for a big website and, um, you know, get paid a salary, a living wage to write about film or talk about film and interview people about film and stuff like that. That would be phenomenal it would be divine if that happened 
But this is not an ideal world and it's not, you know, where those kinds of things can occur. And I know that, again, it's such a small fry thing when you are looking at what's going on in the world today where people, are, you know, jobs are becoming obsolete. You know, factory workers' jobs are becoming obsolete because they're um, being superseded by robots or, uh, you know, AI and things like that. That's a real problem. So I shouldn't complain about oh, the fact that I can't get a job doing what I enjoy doing. Again, small fry stuff, but it's just, it, it's becoming comfortable with that and understanding that, hey, this will only ever just be a hobby. It will only ever be, you know, a fringe thing. And that is, you know, that's sad in a lot of ways. It is, but um, it does make kind of engaging with it a little bit difficult. And sometimes I think, you know, it's great when... Uh, a review that I write gets a lot of attention or an article which I write gets a lot of attention or an episode which I record gets a lot of attention. It's really nice. There's that feedback loop of going, oh, you guys like me, you really like me kind of stuff or or I had something interesting to say at this point. And I won't lie, you know, that feedback loop is really great. Uh, it's that little buzz. It's that that kind of feeling, like, oh my gosh, you know, this is this is what being popular feels like. I guess, uh, even if it's you know a couple of likes or something like that, or a couple of comments on a post or something like that, it's that little bit of buzz, and it's really nice. And you know, that's not a foreign feeling for a lot of people. We all want to be liked. We all want to feel popular, and we all want to uh, you know engage with the the world at large. And I guess for me, in a lot of ways, you know, it comes back to that my social anxiety, and I apologize for the snoring dog next to me. Uh, this is um, a very lo-fi episode, this particular one. I will be getting on to talking about some films in a moment, but uh, basically you're going to have to live with the snoring there as well, uh, just like I do every single night. Thanks, Max. Um, but what I'm getting at is that for me, you know, I have social anxiety. Social anxiety is not a great thing. It, it makes you doubt everything. It makes you not feel comfortable with being out and about and being uh, in society and especially in groups um, and doing strange or different things that you used to. I, I, I get really uncomfortable with all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's there's nothing more that I would like than going and, you know, catching up and meeting a, a new Dungeons and Dragons group or something like that. I've never properly play Dungeons and Dragons on mass, but I, I would like to do that. But my anxiety is like, well, you've never done it before, so therefore you would be useless. And I know that I, because I have done this before where I, I trick my mind into going, no, 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 I actually enjoy it and you'll be fine. You may fail, but that's fine. It's okay. And then you go and do it and you learn how to play something and you have a good time. And that's good. It's enjoyable when that happens, but that's such a rarity that for me, most of the time I go, well, I won't even in engage with that because what's the point? And so what happens then is that, you know, with, with things like I, I went out to a concert last night. There was a meet and greet that I'd, I'd paid for um, that was before the show, um, but my anxiety had me sitting in the car park uh, while the meet and greet was going on and waited until the concert was three quarters of the way done before I actually went in because I was just too anxious to go into the room. And that's not healthy. It's not good at all. 
at all. Uh, but my frame of mind at the time was like, what if I go in there and I've got nothing to say to this person? Or what if I go in there and, you know, it's just uncomfortable? And it's like, well, so what if it's uncomfortable? And I should add, I've met this artist a couple of times and talked to them a couple of times. Um, so it's not like there's been issues in the past. There's, 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 you know, moments where I can say, hey, it was perfectly fine the last few times that you met them and talked to them. What's different about this time? And sometimes you can't get your mind to, to work and trick yourself into actually thinking, you know what, it will actually be fine. Or to uh, simmer down your anxiety enough to be like, you know what, get over yourself, you'll be fine. And that's really sad. It is sad, but I'm working past it. And I'm not asking for sympathy or anything like that, but I'm just explaining why there's been so few podcasts lately. And, you know, I I don't have a huge group of uh, physical friends. Uh, all friends are physical, I know. But, I mean, like I have a lot of friends who don't live in Perth. And I talk to them regularly. Some of them live in Melbourne. Some of them live in America. And, you know, they're all great, lovely people. But I don't see them regularly. Uh, because I don't live in the same city as them. And so therefore, I don't really go out all that much with a group of friends. And having a group of friends is really anxiety-provoking for me. I should, you know, I'm 34 years old. I should have a group of friends. I should have a group that I catch up with regularly and do things with and all this kind of stuff. Uh, society deems that as a must. Society says that you should have X amount of friends. But loneliness is a pretty big thing in society as well. I'm not saying I'm lonely, but I'm just saying that, you know, what society says doesn't always happen. And I find having a group of friends very anxiety provoking. I, I find it uh, like it's terrifying. The notion that you have a, a, a group of people which you probably should catch up with every so often. And that's that frightens me a little bit um, to the point where, you know, when I've tried, I've, you know, joined up with a few groups on Facebook that is all about meeting new people and meeting new friends and stuff like that. Um, and yet, whenever they have an event and stuff like that, I just say to myself, well, no, I won't go because uh, it's too hard. I, I You know, I, I can't get myself to engage with that, which is really sad. Again, it's really sad. I'm not asking for sympathy, but I'm just saying that this is what living with a mental illness is like sometimes and so for me to come back to uh, the podcast and the website and things like that if that feedback loop isn't there that's the, the main level of interaction that I have with something that I absolutely love doing if the feedback loop isn't there where you know uh, you know getting comments and stuff like that then sometimes I get a little bit disheartened. I'm like, well, what, what is the point of all of this? What, a, why am I spending time writing these things and stuff like that um, if nothing comes from it? And again, I'm not asking for sympathy, but I'm just trying to explain my mindset, which doesn't always work. It's a bit silly. You know, minds are really silly, stupid things sometimes. But I'm learning to get past that. Like I'm learning to just enjoy what I do, enjoy my writing, enjoy interviewing people, enjoy talking about films and writing about films and talking about society and stuff like that or video games or whatever. If I can enjoy that and not worry about that feedback loop, not worry about 
how many likes a post get or how many uh, hits on the website and stuff like that. If I can not worry about that, which I've been able to do in the past, by the way, uh, I've found that pretty easy in the past. But if I cannot worry about that, then it doesn't matter. Like I know I do a very lo-fi effort with this, the podcast. I, I, as I mentioned before, I, I have an intro, I hit record and I just record for an hour. I hit stop. I don't edit the thing. And I'm part of a few podcast groups on the internet where uh, people talk about what their process is. And some people will take four or five hours to edit a podcast, taking out all the ums, the ahs, the silences and all this kind of stuff to make it a pristine thing. And then weeks later, they go on about, oh, I don't have very many listeners on the show. And I'm like, okay, well, obviously audio quality doesn't really matter all that much uh, for podcast listens. And I'm not saying my quality uh, of content is great, but if the content is good enough, then isn't that all that matters? Isn't that enough? And sometimes that should be enough. Um, and hopefully I deliver an interesting and enough show for people, uh, especially when I ramble on for 20 minutes about uh, me, um, which is exactly what you tune into this show about, isn't it? It's exactly what you tune into a podcast that's titled Not a Knife uh, for, uh, to hear a guy rambling on about himself. That's really uh, super helpful, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, hopefully that was interesting. I don't know. I'm not going to listen back to it. But basically, I'm just trying to say that, you know, anxiety is a frustrating thing. It tricks your mind into doing things that you should and shouldn't do. And even though you know things are going to be perfectly fine, a reasonable sane person will say, if you go and do this meet and greet, you will be perfectly fine. Nothing is going to go wrong. You are not going to die. You are not going to make a fool of yourself. Um, my mind still says, no, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. You are wrong. And that's the frustrating thing. And it's you just kind of want to take that voice and get a pillow and then smother it uh, so it never makes another noise. Um I want to talk about a game that I've completed recently. A game which I think is the best game that I've played this year. No, I don't think it is. I know it's the best game I've played this year. And I've played a bunch of really good games this year. Um, But Celeste, it's a platformer that's out on PlayStation 4. I believe it's out on Switch as well. And I think it's out on PC. Maybe it's on Xbox as well. I'm not sure. I'm not going to search for it for you. But Celeste, C-E-L-E-S-T-E. It is about a mountain, Celeste Mountain. And you are a girl, Madeline, who is climbing that mountain. And as you climb the mountain, you uh, get into a battle with uh, somebody who you meet in a mirror, who pops out of a mirror and uh, is your reflection, and you fight it. And as you climb up the mountain, you struggle with this reflection, and you struggle against some of the, the people that you meet along the way. And... The game is a whole entire metaphor. It's a metaphor for depression. It's a metaphor for living with anxieties. And it's a metaphor for mental illness. And I'm not just saying it's the best game because of the fact that it's a huge metaphor and it's a metaphor which I appreciate. I'm not just saying that. It's a great game because of the way that the actual gameplay is reflected, reflects that that particular metaphor. Because... It's a platformer that is very difficult at times. It is a platformer that really 
pushes you and forces you to go, ah, fuck you, man. Fuck you. And you get frustrated and you get angry and you get upset. And the game constantly reminds you, hey, if you're having a hard time, just take a step back, put the game down, reflect on it, come back when you're feeling less stressed. And you'll be able to see things a little bit differently. And there were times where I didn't know how to pass a particular level. I didn't know how to get to a certain point that I need to get to. And I would do that. I would I would go, all right, you know what? I've had enough of you tonight, game. I've, I've enjoyed my time, but I feel I'm getting frustrated. And I'm going to put the controller down. I'm going to come back to you tomorrow when I'm level-headed. And I do that. And I put the controller down and I fire it back up the day after. And I'm like, you know what? This problem is actually not that hard. This is a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. And that's what I love about this game is it, it, it teaches... Not teachers. Teachers is the wrong word. But it shows you how mental illness plays with your mind in a lot of ways and how difficult it can be for people living with depression or anxiety to get through their day. And yes, I know it's just a video game, but sometimes for people who don't live with mental illness, it's hard to understand how you you can wake up in the morning and then just feel like you really are just you can't do anything you can't even reach over to your phone and turn off the the snooze button on your alarm because you're just so depressed and that's a hard thing for people who don't live with mental illness to understand it really is and i'm not saying that a video game is going to perfectly be able to display to people who don't understand depression or anxiety i don't i don't think that this game is going to you know have people walking away going well I know everything about depression now, but I think because of that frustrating, that frustration, that feedback loop of you are getting frustrated, maybe you should just stop, or you are having a really difficult time right now, even though you know how to do everything that the game has shown you to do, you are having a really difficult time, and you don't know how to get past this at this point, and. I think that that kind of, that daily frustration, that daily, you know, oh, this is all too hard feeling for people who live with depression is something that's hard to relate to people who don't have a mental illness. And I think that Celeste does a really good job of displaying that. I, I think it really showcases how hard it can be for people some days and how difficult small tasks can be. Jumping from one spot to another. If you think about the opening of the first uh, Mario game, you know, it's very, very easy. It's basic. You know, one, you know, little, you know, gap and a Goomba and all this kind of stuff. There are things which are put into your path, which, you know, on your first run through, you're like, you don't know how to jump. And then you hit the Goomba and you're like, oh, fuck you, Goomba. Where, what are you doing, Goomba? And then you learn, oh, ah, if I jump and then I land on the Goomba, then I'll kill the Goomba. And this kind of progression, you understand, you learn as you're going along. But if you think about, like, Celeste, what it does is, like, everything is that Goomba and you don't know how to pass that Goomba. Even though you have the right tools in your hand, you know how to jump, you know how to, you know, double jump and things like that. But everything is that, that very, very first Goomba that you ever encountered in a Mario game where you're like, oh my God, Jesus, I didn't know that I could do that. 
And then when you do know that you can do it, you're like, this is actually not so hard. It's it's pretty easy. Um, it's a great game. I absolutely love it. And then one of the the I hesitate to call him a villain, uh, but or an enemy because he is an empathetic character. But one of the characters that you encounter has bipolar, is bipolar, and uh, the way that's presented in the game is really brilliant. Uh, it's fantastic, and the way he deals with you know, do people like me? Do people not like me? Do people understand what I'm doing? All this kind of stuff is fascinating. It's great. I really enjoy it. I, I think it's a fantastic game, a really beautiful game. And the way that it ends as well, um, which is a slight spoiler alert for Celeste. So I apologize for this, but nonetheless, spoiler alert in one, two, three. So that person that you meet at the beginning, the reflection in the mirror, who initially is your enemy and that's your physical representation of depression and doubt and you know the weight that depression is on you that's an enemy to begin with but as madeline progresses she learns that you know what i shouldn't be fighting this i should learn how to work with this i should learn how to live with this and how to deal with my issues with this depression by my side and the depression and Madeline have a discussion and they're like you know what we're going to get through this together it's going to suck and at times it's going to be difficult but we're going to get through this together and we're going to arrive at the end and feel okay and the end of Celeste is climbing to the top of this mountain the top of Celeste mountain and it's a beautiful moment at the end because you've gone through so much difficult stuff with this weight on your shoulders with this depression this anxiety just hanging there and it helps you along the way but it also hinders you on some points and you know to see you reach to see your character reach this this peak and the game's a good nine ten hours long so it's a long period of time to be with these characters and to be with these difficult moments and to see that at the end, it's really powerful. It's, it, it was very emotional. And this is just like a 16-bit game. You know, it's nothing visually stunning, but it moved me. It moved me because I could relate to that. And, you know, knowing that, like, if you have a mental illness, if you have depression, if you live with depression, you are likely going to live with that for life. And same with anxiety. It's, it's learning how to... You know, live a life with anxiety and to decrease the the anxious moments, to decrease those depressive moments. And to live and understand how to do that is to live a positive life. And and that's why I like talking about mental illness and talking about um, mental health in particular, because I think that it's something that we as society, we need to get better with talking about it. As a society, we need to get better with appreciating and understanding people who live with mental illness now i've had a few days off work here and there and my manager is really really helpful she understands what it's like to live with mental illness she understands that and you know i voiced my concern to my my colleagues the other day i said you know i don't want you guys to think that i'm having a day off and just sitting there watching tv like when i'm having a day off and i'm depressed you know it's a huge weight on my shoulders I feel like I'm letting the team down. I feel like I'm letting myself down and I feel like I'm letting just everybody down. 
And I feel like there is that kind of judgment in the sense that, oh, he's just sitting there watching TV. He's, you know, not actually unwell. When I actually am very unwell sometimes. And it's hard to convey that, you know, because it's not like a cough when you call up and you go, I'm sorry, I'm not coming in today. I'm not feeling very well kind of thing. You know, that is a physical thing. You can see, you can hear that that person is unwell. Or, oh, look, I really can't come in today. I sprained my ankle over the weekend and I can't walk on it. It's really painful. I should, you know, the doctor said I should just rest. It's a physical thing. People can see that you actually sprained your ankle. But depression and anxiety and mental illness, they're not physical things. You can't see somebody. You can't look at somebody walking down the street and go, ah, oh, they're depressed. I mean, sometimes people who have the physical... You know, their, their body language suggests that they're not feeling well, um, they're not in a positive mood or anything like that, but you can't look at them and say, you're definitely depressed. <laughs> oh, that person has come down with a, a, a bout of depression. Uh, they are certainly feeling shit. Um, it's physically not an evident illness, uh, which makes it hard for people to sometimes understand that, hey, uh, you know, you're having a really shit time at the moment and we understand that just take your time look after yourself and i'm really grateful that my colleagues who you know they all said to me they're like you need to break out of that mentality you can't carry that weight on you we're perfectly fine we understand what you're going through we understand and we're here for you and i'm really thankful that i've got colleagues who are very very supportive in that regard i know that not everybody has that i know that not everybody has a support network and it's hard to find a support network and create a support network uh, for yourself. Uh, sometimes family members, uh, they should be there to help you, but they're not. Uh, sometimes your friends, they should be there to help you, but they're not. And sometimes your workplace it should understand, but it doesn't. And, you know, breaking open that conversation about mental illness and mental health is hard. It's not easy. Uh, but I think uh, for people who don't live with mental illness, it's important to listen to those who do or to talk about it with your friends or colleagues or family members uh, you know who may not understand what mental illness is like and get them to understand that it's an unseen illness and Celeste to me coming back to this game managed to do that perfectly I, I, I really really loved it I thought it was a fantastic game really really fantastic and you know, branching off for a second away from a video game and away from uh, mental illness in some regards, I'm going to talk about some movies now as well uh, that I've seen recently. I need to review these films and sometimes sitting down and writing a review 500 to 1,000 words is not easy, especially for films like Sorry to Bother You, which is a great film. It's a really interesting film. Um, but it's a film that I think... Look, it's hard to... It's hard to kind of uh, really talk about this film because it's um, it's a film that you need to see for yourself. The 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 is written and directed by Boots Riley, um, stars Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, uh, a bunch of other people as well. And basically, this is a skewed version of of the world as it is today. Um, and Lakeith Stanfield's character, Cassius Green, uh, is unemployed at the beginning and he needs a job. 
and he goes and applies for this telemarketer position. And while he's working there, he meets uh, Danny Glover, and Danny Glover says, you need to use your white voice to really boost your sales up. And Cassius is a bit like, what? What do you mean white voice? And then Danny Glover uses his white voice, and suddenly people on the other end of the line are buying what he's selling because he's exuding confidence. He's exuding, uh, you know, white confidence. He has no problems in the world. He needs, he's exuding the the personality of somebody who doesn't have a mortgage, who is financially safe and sound, who is living a a-okay life, a successful white man life. And so Cassius employs his own white voice and suddenly he's launching himself up the, the corporate ladder. He's managing to move up in his position at work and, and as he does so, he, well, to go further than that would be to spoil it. This is a film that, you know, my immediate reaction as I as I walked out of it was that it's a film that kind of feels like Boots Riley is running a little bit too fast and he's he's running downhill and he's running way too fast for his legs to actually catch up to themselves. And he's not tripping over just yet, but he's almost there. He's almost tripping over because he's got too many ideas in his mind and he's got to get them all down. And this film is just jam-packed with ideas. It is jam-packed with ideas to the brim. It ends with this batshit crazy twist which came out of nowhere and I'm like, I still don't entirely get where he's going with that. I don't, but I appreciate what he's doing. I appreciate that he is attempting to tell this anti-capitalist story and and this you know story which basically suggests that hey we should really all pay attention to capitalism and maybe you should go and join a union because unions are really good so it's an extremely left-leaning film extremely left-leaning but i just kind of wish like it has first film syndrome where you're not sure, like Boots Riley is not sure if he's going to ever get to make another movie in his life at all. So I just better get everything down on paper right now. And he does that. And again, it's it's full of those ideas, but they don't all succeed and they're not all coherent. But it's good. It's an interesting film. And it's something that I think that everybody should watch because it's it's got a lot going on in it. It's got a lot going under the lid. I gave it four stars. I found it interesting. Uh, I didn't love it. I was really hoping to love it because it had been a long while since it's been released in America and I was afraid that we were never going to get it here in Australia. Uh, just like we are probably not going to get Blind Spotting, which I hear is another film that talks about race in a very interesting way. Um, but that's not on the lineup of films coming out in Australia. Uh, First Reformed is finally getting a release uh, straight to DVD in Australia uh, next week. Uh, and Eighth Grade, uh, all this while, has finally gotten a release, uh, and that will be in January. Another film that kind of fell off the radar completely. Uh, I've watched it recently thanks to the fact that it's out on DVD in America. You know, so uh, what can we do about these kinds of uh, release patterns? I don't know. Well, I do know. Go and see these films when they're out. Go and see Sorry to Bother You. Show the you know show the the, the producers and and the distributors that there is an audience for films like this. And Sorry to Bother You is a film that you really should be seen with an audience. It should be seen with a jam packed audience. It's it, as I said, it's jam packed full of all those ideas. It's interesting. Really, really interesting. 
What is also interesting is a film that's coming up soon, which is Anna and the Apocalypse. Now, Anna and the Apocalypse is a, well, it's a zombie Christmas comedy musical. Um, and it's nice. It's a fine little film. It's directed by John McPhail. Uh, it stars Ella Hunt, Sarah Swire, Malcolm Cumming, and a bunch of other people you've never heard of. Um, I like this film enough. It's okay. Uh, what it does is it, it, as I said, it blends in zombies, it blends in musicals, it blends in Christmas and comedy and all this kind of stuff. And it wants to embrace all of those things equally. Uh, for starters, it fails completely on the Christmas front. I don't know why it's set at Christmas, um, because Christmas rarely even factors into it, other than the fact that they're doing an end-of-year, uh, this based around a school setup kind of thing, where Anna and her pals go to, um, and they're doing an end-of-year review kind of thing with musical numbers and stuff like that. All right, fine, but... The Christmas element, I think, was really lacking. I, I could have done with a lot more Christmas in there, and this is coming from somebody who does not like Christmas. Um, the music is fine. It's very poppy. Uh, I, I don't know what I expected going in, but, uh, yeah, it's extremely poppy, and unfortunately you get the feeling like... You know, I know that most musicals, obviously, they uh, modern musicals at least, that they record the songs, and they're not actually singing on the set, but it would have been nice to have had the impression that the characters were actually singing uh, rather than them miming to a, a, a soundtrack, basically. Um, it's just fine. It, it's fine. The gore is really good uh, along the way. It's really, really good. And there's a great villain character in the, the uh, wannabe uh, principal of the high school. is uh, a great little villain character. Um, but unfortunately, you know... It just doesn't mesh the genres all that well together. I still had a good time, but I really wanted to love this. I heard some great things about it leading up to it, and I just wish I'd loved it a little bit more. So I can only give it three stars. Uh, but if you are a little bit more forgiving than me, uh, um, then maybe it might be the film for you. Unfortunately for me, it wasn't, and and that's a little bit disappointing. Um, before I did my top 30 Australian films of the year list, I decided it was probably a good idea to catch up on some of the films that uh, the Australian films that I hadn't seen throughout the year. Uh, so I watched uh, Cargo, which is nominated for Best Picture at the Actor Awards, which will be this Wednesday. Um, it's a solid film. It stars Martin Freeman as a dude with his wife, Susie Porter, uh, who are in a post-apocalyptic world, post world in Australia. And there are infected people in the, the country and they have 48 hours to live, well, until they, they you know, become these zombie-infected creatures. Um, what I think this is really interesting... You know, I don't think it entirely works, but I found it very effective in the way that it revitalized the zombie genre in a way that Anna and the Apocalypse doesn't. Um, but it revitalized it in a way that it looks at the zombie genre from the perspective of Indigenous Australians. We, we simply have never seen a zombie film from that perspective. And it's nice to see how, you know, the the actions and the, the ways of the First Nations people are put into effect to help combat this 
zombie outbreak. I think it's really interesting the way that it manages to do that. Unfortunately, the film does focus on a white protagonist, uh, and Martin Freeman is good. He does a very solid job, um, but it's not as effective as I'd hoped it would be. There is a great Blu-ray release via Umbrella Entertainment, um, which has got a great bunch of special features on their commentary and uh, making of and stuff like that, behind-the-scenes stuff. Really, really fantastic stuff. And yes, the film is available to watch on Netflix around the world. However, I would, you know, if you really like this film, I would recommend picking up that Blu-ray release from Umbrella Entertainment. Those extras are really informative, and it also contains the short film that the film is actually based on. It's a really great little short film, and I think that, you know, like a lot of films, feature-length films that are, you know, created from a short film, um, you kind of feel them grasping for some ideas to fill out the 90-minute running time uh, that weren't in the short film, and Cargo does a better job of kind of linking those ideas together a little bit more fluently uh, and legibly as well um, than some other films have done. But, you know, I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was fine. Uh, on Letterboxd, I gave it four stars, but on Reflection, I'd probably give it a three and a half. The disc itself, the Blu-ray disc itself, I would give four stars. It's really, really solid stuff. Uh, also, watch Kangaroo Love Hate Story. You can read my review, which I've written on the website, thecurb.com.au. Uh, I thought it was a really solid film. It's like Australia's answer to The Cove and Blackfish, uh, but it focuses around kangaroos. And it's not an easy watch. I mean, the opening moments of the film have kangaroos being beaten to death. Um, and then later on in the film, there are scenes of joeys that are getting their heads bashed in on the sides of bull bars. Um, and you know it's there's one really particularly disturbing sequence with a joey that is you know has escaped from its dead mum and it's so emaciated and uh it's a it's a devastating scene it really is so this is not for the queasy the um you know people who can't deal with that kind of uh imagery but I think it is an important film to watch because Australia has a kangaroo on its national emblem, yet we eat kangaroos all the time and we, uh, you know, use kangaroo leather and things like that and football shoes and, and all this kind of stuff. And this documentary holds a mirror up to us and says, yeah, what are we doing, guys? Hey, what are we doing? And is it right? Should we be doing this? Um it does feel like a film that has an agenda, but on the flip side, it actually does allow you to understand uh, where people from who are you know pro killing animals where they're coming from, and it helps you understand the industry that has been built up around roo shooters and the people who are employed to go to farms and take out you know the the flocks of kangaroos that go there and in inverted commas, eat the sheep's food, even though it's, you know, kangaroos were here before the sheep and all this kind of stuff. And it, it gives you the understanding of how kangaroos have been turned into a pest, even though they are native to Australia. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in that kind of ecological story, uh, then I highly recommend seeing Kangaroo, a love-hate story. It's not an easy watch, I said, um, but neither was Blackfish and neither was The Cove. Um, but it's just as important because it's a story which I don't think many people are aware of. 
Book Week, I also saw, which I mentioned I didn't interview with the director, Heath Davis. I, I really like this film. Um, it's not as effective as his previous film, Broke, um, but it's a nice little dark comedy that, that hums along quite well. Uh, I think it was really, really entertaining and very interesting um, and something which I highly recommend seeking out if you like dark comedies. You know, Australia, we've made some really good comedies this year, Swinging Safari and The Merger, all you know and book week all really good comedies very very entertaining things um so you know why aren't australian audiences going and seeing these films so you know i see still the same argument over and over and over again which is australia doesn't make very very many uh comedic films we're too serious sweet country oh they're so serious and it's like yeah okay sweet country was very serious but did you go and see The Merger? Did you go and see Book Week? Did you go and see Swinging Safari? They're all very funny films that are about that comedy that you say that Australia is missing. So go and watch Australian comedies, basically is what I'm trying to say. Um, I gave that three and a half stars. It's a solid film. Suspiria, Luca Guadagnino's remake of Dario Gento's 1970s film, uh, classic horror film. I adore Argento's film. It's my favorite Argento horror. Uh, it's one of my favorite films of all time. I've lost count of how many times I've seen Suspiria. I absolutely love it. It's a great movie. I don't love Luca Guadagnino's uh, Suspiria. I really don't. But I think it's interesting. It's not really a remake either. Uh, it feels like it's taken a, the kernel of the, the idea that is the central thesis behind Suspiria. This foreign girl goes to a... Uh, ballet school and bad things happen well the that that same thesis occurs in this suspiria um but it's added you know some flourishes on the side which make it a two and a bit hour affair that that kind of just drags a little bit and there's this subplot regarding the berlin wall and uh that just kind of goes a bit nowhere and you know the beta meinhof complex and things like that which i don't know all that much about and Maybe I should, and maybe that might elevate the film a little bit more for me, but I just felt like, you know, okay, what are we putting this in there for? And I expected, as the film neared the end, I'm like, all right, so all of this is going to amount to something, and then it didn't amount to anything, and it felt weird. It just felt odd. The horror scenes are great, and the end is brilliant. You know, the the... The violent end is a fantastic conclusion to this film. It really is. Uh, It's a really impressively shot moment as well. Even if it does include that queasy kind of uh, um, slow-mo post-production panning kind of thing that, that, you know, just makes it in really difficult to watch those moments where the the camera is moving quick but they've gone and slowed down the the frames in post-production i didn't like that but i enjoyed that particular sequence regardless uh, nonetheless i think it's an interesting film it's not perfect but it does its job i gave it three and a half stars a few other films which I think are worthwhile seeking out, Shirkers and Next of Kin. Both of them are on Netflix at the moment. Uh, no, not Next of Kin. I apologize. Nef- Next of Kin is not on Netflix. Next of Kin is a Blu-ray release. It's out by Umbrella. I didn't love it. It's an exploitation um, uh, film. I gave it two and a half stars. That's as much as I'll say about that. The Night Comes for Us is what I'm trying to say. I have a list here that I've written down, um, and I'm reading it in the wrong order. 
Night Comes For Us and Shirkers. Both of them four-star films, both of them really, really effective and interesting films. And some of the best of the year, Shirkers is a documentary about a woman who... uh, you know, basically, she finds some footage of a film that she had made many, many years ago. Sandy Tan is the director, and she had made this. She'd made this movie called Shirkers, and the film didn't eventuate. And this is a documentary that's about the film that didn't eventuate and what happens to it. I love it. I think it's got a lot of personality and it's really enjoyable. Fantastic stuff. Highly recommend watching it. It's only 90 minutes long. You'll enjoy it. Go in blind. That's as much as I'll tell you about this film. It's really good. Um, And don't read anything else about it as well. Just watch it. The Night Comes for Us is intense. It's brutal. It's bloody. It's violent. It is gory. It is one of the most intense violent films I've ever seen. Uh, It has the vibe of the raid and... The intense violence of the raid too. If you think about that, uh, that fight that's in the prison yard in the mud is really brutal and disgusting. That's the kind of uh, violence that's in the night comes for us. Except it's turned up to eleven. It's it's brutal, intense stuff. Um, don't watch this if you're really queasy and easily upset stomach. Um, but do watch this if you like action films that really have a powerful great energy uh fantastic stuff the plot doesn't make a lick of sense um but it doesn't matter when you have great action like this four stars for both of those films i also saw roma um which is a little film that you all might have heard of (laughs) it's alfonso cuaron's latest film it's fucking great it is beautiful. It's stunning. Alfonso Cuaron did the cinematography for this film, and it's a love letter to his past, his history. Uh, I was fortunate enough to see it at a press screening uh, on a big screen, and you know, usually I'm a bit cynical about when people say to me, "You must see this on the big screen." I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, it's fine. No worries. I'll, I'll see it on the big screen. I will. But this film, you really must see on the big screen. And the reason why you must see it on the big screen is that, yes, it's coming to Netflix in a very short period of time. And yes, you must watch it when it's on Netflix. But if you have the opportunity of watching on a big screen, then you are forced to sit there and participate and engage with the film as it occurs. Because there are long silences in this film. There are long moments where it's, you know, taking your time, it's time to establish what the scene is about, what is going on in a particular scene. There is a fascinating, really, really powerful scene that occurs in a cinema about halfway through, which I was just like, oh my gosh, this is just, my heart goes out to these characters. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. But because I'm watching it in a cinema, I'm able to appreciate and engage with it in a way that I'm not distracted by my phone or anything like that. And I know that's a me problem. It's a viewer problem. But, you know, don't kid yourself. When you're watching a film on Netflix, you're easily distracted. If it's starting to wane a little bit or a scene is dragging on a little bit too long or you feel it's just kind of meandering a little bit, you can't help but feel like, oh, maybe I should just check Facebook quickly. Oh, maybe I should just, oh, I'll just check this. Oh, I'll just have a look over here just quickly kind of thing. It's easy to get distracted. And that's why I think that Roma is a film that works brilliantly. I mean, the cinematography by Afonso Cuaron is stunning. Um, you know, Lubeski wasn't available to, to help out with this particular film at the time. Uh, so Quaron decided, you know, what, I'll do it myself. And he does a great job. The cinematography is beautiful. It really is. And that's even, you know, just stunning to see on a big screen. It's really, really beautiful stuff. But 
I think that you know you need that 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 engagement, that just dedication to sit there and watch it because it's black and white. It's in a foreign language. It does take its time to tell these stories, and it is a little bit demanding in some areas. Um, but I just love it. I think it's a beautiful film. I give it four and a half stars. It's one of the best films of the year. Uh, also, I saw a film which isn't coming out until next year, and I know that I'm throwing a lot of films at you at the moment, and I will wrap up this episode in just a second. Um, but it's been a while since I've talked about these films, and I certainly, you know, I'm going to write up some reviews for some of them, but uh, others I won't. Uh, like Sorry to Bother You, for example, I, I can't write up a review for that. I don't even know how to start off writing a review for that. Um, but I do have a review which I'll write for this film, and I just want to give it a shout-out because I know it's currently playing in America, and it might slip by some people's radars because it would have slipped by my radar if I didn't go and see it. And that's the film Instant Family. It's directed by the guy who did Daddy's Home 2. Uh, it stars Mark Wahlberg. It's got Rose Byrne in it. Um, on paper, this sounds really bad. Uh, it's about a couple, Rose Byrne and Mark Wahlberg, who uh, you know, are 30-something people, and uh, they're living life. And you know what they do is he's a, a home... Um, repair a guy they do up houses they flip them that kind of thing great no worries you're white suburbanites who have a very luxurious life fantastic for you people but they hit a point where they're like yeah this we kind of feel like we should have something a little bit more in our life and they joke about adopting a kid and then they're like you know what actually we should adopt a kid and so they go and find out how to adopt a kid. They do a course. Um, Tig Notaro and um, Octavia Spencer are the, the people who run this course. And they, they're great characters in this film. And, you know, these two main characters, Mark Wagberg and Rose Burns characters, are like, you know what, we're going to adopt a kid. And then they meet this teenager and they're like, you know what, we're going to adopt you. And But she's got a brother and sister and they don't know about that just yet until they... Uh, go and meet up with Tignatar and Octavia Spencer's characters and they say, we want to adopt this teenage girl. And they're like, yeah, but she's also got a brother and sister. And I'm like, all right, we've gone this far. May as well get a, you know, a threefer. And so they adopt three kids and they look after them. And it's fantastic. It's really good. Like, I, I must admit, I'm a bit of a sucker for adoption stories. I get a little bit heartbroken about adoption stories. I think that's why Lion works so well for me. I absolutely love that film. And it... You know, it, it, it made me sob at the end of that movie. It really did. Um, but I just think, you know, there's 7 billion people in this planet and it, it just says a lot for people who, you know, they're like, I'm not going to have kids, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to adopt a kid because there's a mouth who, you know, not a mouth, there is a body attached to that mouth. There's a human attached to that mouth. <laughs> But there's somebody out there who needs a loving home and a loving family. And what I love about Instant Family is that it doesn't shy away from the fact that these are people who have come from difficult lives. These are people who, you know, may be displaced because their parents might have become drug addicts or may be displaced because of sexual abuse or things like that. It doesn't shy away from that. And I'm really impressed that it doesn't. And also doesn't shy away from the fact that, you know, Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne are very white. And they're characters who say, you know, we don't really want to, you know, what happens, you know, we're, we're white people and we're raising some Mexican kids. What, what kind of impression does that give, you know, that we're kind of, uh, we don't want to give the impression that we're just adopting 
these kids just because they are a minority group or they're not white. We don't want that impression. And the way the film tackles with that is really impressive. I thought it was a really mature way of dealing with it. Um, and there's even a character who, uh, you know, it becomes a bit of a running joke and she's hilarious. This single mum, well, this single woman who wants, she specifically wants a tall black male teenager so she can shape him up to be a basketballer and rose burns character is like you want to blindside him you want to blindside this kid you want to you want to be sandra bullock and blindside which is a hilarious moment and um where that particular character ends up and and who that character ends up with is is really amusing as well but it's not this isn't a film that's afraid to uh, shy away from exploring um that kind of field and that kind of aspect of you know people engaging with this kind of uh, these these racial topics and and raising kids who aren't white and they are white and things like that. I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was brilliant, and Rose Byrne is always great. She's great to watch, but Mark Wahlberg is really good here too. And I know that a lot of people have had their you know, Phil of Mark Wahlberg, especially with the Peter Berg films. I get it. I understand. I know what he is like. I know that it's like, oh, for fuck's sake, man. Jesus. I get that. I know that. But he's good here. And he works well alongside Rose Byrne as well. And the kids are really fantastic too. Uh, interestingly enough, um, the, the teenage girl uh, was in the last Transformers film, which I quite liked, I thought it was all right, Isabella Mona, uh, who played the uh, the young girl in the last Transformers film. So she has worked with Mark Wahlberg before, uh, but she's really good here as well. Um, but I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. So I gave it four stars. Again, people in Australia, it's not out in cinemas until January, midway through January, um, but it's out in cinemas in America at the moment. So if that sounds like your kind of thing, then it's good. Um, and it's very PG friendly as well. There's hardly any swears in there. Um, it's a very wholesome kind of film for, for a whole family. All right, uh, last film, guys. Uh, thank you again for listening this far. If you have done, um, I appreciate it. This is a very meandering episode. It's very um, fluffy episode, so I appreciate you having stuck with me this far. Um, but the last film I want to talk about is a film called Can You Ever Forgive Me? I fucking love this film. Uh, on paper, this film doesn't sound like all that much. Uh, it's about Lee Israel, who is a celebrity biographer. Uh, back in the early 90s, she was struggling to get books out. Uh, she wants to write a book about Fanny Bryce, but there is nobody who's interested in a book about Fanny Bryce. She asked her publicist, why the heck is Tom Clancy getting millions of dollars to talk about his books and push his books when I'm getting nothing? I can't even get a book about Fanny Bryce made. And her publisher says, because you're not a very nice person. Don't be an angry person and maybe you'll get that... that you know, book deal. Lee Israel is played by Melissa McCarthy. Her publicist is played by Jane Curtin. And Lee Israel becomes friends with her, this guy, Jack, who's played by Richard E. Grant. And along the way of poverty and unemployment, uh, Lee manages, she's doing research on Fanny Bryce and she finds a letter in a book that is written for Fanny Bryce. And it's got a signature on there. And she manages to sell it. And she gets a couple of hundred dollars from it. And then she gets in her mind, 
you know what? I am a writer. I know a lot about celebrities. I could possibly forge some of these letters and forge the signatures. So she does. She creates these letters, uh, these fictional letters uh, written by um, you know, Noel Coward and many other people as well. Uh, and she starts to get some money from it. And the film follows what's happened from there. This is directed by Mario Heller, who previously did Diary of a Teenage Girl, which is a great little film. It's fantastic. It's also uh, written by Nicole Holfsener, uh, and it's co-written by uh, somebody else as well. Uh, just bear with me, and I'll bring that up. Nicole Holfsener and Jeff Whitty. Um, and it's beautiful. The direction is stunning. It's really lovely, and it's very gentle, caring direction. The writing is beautiful as well. You can really tell that, yes, I know Jeff Whitty's taken involvement of this as well, but you can tell that this is written and directed by women. And I can't tell you how you can tell that, but you just can. And the comparison that I had in my mind was it's a bit like Hidden Figures. You can tell that Hidden Figures is written and directed by men. You can tell that. You just can tell. But Can You Ever Forgive Me is very compassionate. Lee Israel is not a particularly likable person. She is an agoraphobe. She struggles with society. I can relate to her quite a lot. In fact, I sat through the film going, oh, I'm like that in a lot of ways. And I appreciate that, you know, and I appreciate who she is as a person. But I appreciate that that kind of person is not an easy person to relate to. But Melissa McCarthy, Mario Heller... And uh, Nicole Holfsener and Jeff Woody all make that character relatable and somebody who you can understand where she's coming from, understand who she is as a person. And I really appreciate that. I really, really appreciate it. It's, it's lovely to see that. It really is. I think this is a beautiful film. I'm, I'm in awe of it. It's charming. It's beautiful. It's funny. It's heartwarming. But it's also heartbreaking as well. Um I'm really glad to have learnt Lee Israel's story. I really am because, you know, she seems like somebody I would really appreciate a lot more. And I'm looking forward to picking up her book, which uh, this particular film is based on. I, I want to read her writing. You know, she is the kind of person that they're presenting here. Then I want to know her a little bit more via her writing. I think this is great. Do yourself a favor and go and watch this film. I give it four and a half stars. It's it's one of the best films that's coming out this particular award season. Uh, it's just fantastic. I absolutely love it. Um, and Melissa McCarthy is, you know, she's given one of the best performances of the year. It's really great. Really, really great. That's Can You Ever Forgive Me and a shitload of other films. Um, hopefully there's something in there you might enjoy. Uh, Roma is coming up on Netflix very, very soon. But again, I'm repeating myself, if you have the opportunity, I know then Perth it's got a few screenings um, at the Cine Latino Film Festival coming up. Um, if you have the opportunity to watch it on a big screen, watch it on the big screen. Uh, or alternatively, find a friend who has a big screen and watch it on their big screen. Um, but turn off your phone and watch it with no distractions. Sit there and engage with it and appreciate it because it's a fantastic film. Um, and thank you for listening this far if you have done. I, I appreciate it. I know that I had a bit of a, a sad at the beginning, you know, what about me, poor me kind of thing. But I just thought that, you know, 
for those who do listen to the show, I appreciate it. And for those who do take the moment to uh, let me know, hey, I appreciated listening to that and stuff like that. I, I appreciate that. And I'm not trying to say, I want more of that. I would like more of it. Of course, everybody would. Uh, everybody likes uh, rewarding feedback and things like that. But I just, you know, felt that I owed people an explanation of why I've been silent for so long in some ways. Um, it's not uh, intentional, but it's just... It's, yeah, such is life, basically. Such is life. What a terrible term. What a terrible term. Anyway, look, I'm meandering again. Social media, Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash the curb AU, Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the curb AU. They're the places that you can find me. Uh, I have an Instagram account, instagram.com forward slash the curb AU, maybe, I don't know. You plug into your Instagram app, you type the curb AU, and you'll find me. Uh, it's mostly pictures of my dogs um, and music that I'm listening to on the radio and record player and stuff like that. So if that's your thing, so be it. Uh, follow me there. If you have questions, you can send me an email, thecurbau at gmail.com. I will be doing my best films, uh, best Australian films episode after the Actor Awards on Wednesday. Uh, so it's going to be a bit of a bumper episode. Expect it to be about two hours long. Uh, that will be coming up later in the week. Um where I whinge about sweet country, hopefully, you know, hopefully sweet country will have won a lot of awards and you won't hear me whinging about films that didn't deserve to win big awards. Uh, looking at you ladies in black. I haven't seen that film yet. I won't see it. I apologize. Uh, it's unfair for me to have done my top 30 Australian films of the year and not seen it, but these are the way the biscuits crumble. Uh, so the curb au at gmail.com. Alternatively, if you want, you can also head over to patreon.com forward slash the curb AU. Throw me a dollar. Uh, it would be nice. It helps keep the website running and all that kind of stuff. I just paid the uh, the yearly uh, fee for keeping the website alive and not dead. And that was a truckload of money. Um, and that's where most of my money goes to keeping the website alive. Um Poor me, again, uh, small problems. Um, and that website is thecurb.com.au. You can read written reviews. You can read my top 10 albums of the year. The number one album of the year is Lost Friends by Middle Kids. Brilliant album. I absolutely love it. Heck, you know what? I'm just going to quickly read you my top 10 uh, albums of the year. I won't go into it in detail. You can find that on the website, thecurb.com.au. Uh, let's start off with number 10. We've got Gurumul's album, uh, Jadir Amiri, uh, Child of the Rainbow, fantastic album, beautiful album. Um, a Cheat at number nine is Earth Boy's Turning Circle EP. It's only got five songs on there. It should be a full album, but tough bananas. This is my list. Eight is Janelle Monae's Dirty Computer. Great album, beautiful stuff. Number seven is First Aid Kit's Ruins. Number six is Camp Cope, How to Socialize and Make Friends. I think we could all learn from that album. Number five is Tropical Fuckstorm. A laughing death in meat space. Good stuff. Number four. Didn't think that this album would hit number four, but it rose on the list as I was doing it. Cardi B's Invasion of Privacy. Love it. Great album. Great album. Number three. Courtney Barnett's Tell Me How You Really Feel. Number two. Abby May's latest album, Fruit. Now, disclosure. I'm a sucker for Abby May. Love her work. Love it. Always features in my top ten. So take that with a grain of salt. But I really enjoy her work. So, you know... Suck it. Uh, and number one, Middle Kids, Lost Friends. Missing out on the list is Mojo Juju's album and uh, also a couple of other songs as well. Um, 
I know Moaning Lisa's song, Carry I Want a Girl, is probably my favorite song of the year, but they didn't release an album, so therefore I can't put them on my top 10 albums list. Uh, That's enough from me. Enjoy those albums. Head over to curb.com.au. Get in touch with me if you want to. Um, Thank you again for listening to this rambling uh, mess. I really hope you guys listen to this at like 1.5 times times speed if you do actually listen. Uh, If you don't, Good o, just hit download. That's good enough for me. Uh, but you didn't listen this far, so you didn't know to hit download. But that's okay. Fine. No drums. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you on another episode of whatever this show is. Au revoir. I see you've played knifey spoony before. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzcastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.